Our meditation tonight comes from John chapter 19. We'll be looking at John 19 tonight, John chapter 20 on Sunday morning. So if you'd like to be turning there, if you're using one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 905 of that Bible. Before we begin, let me just say this, that uh, because of the resurrection of Jesus, the dominant emotional and effective tone of all of Scripture and for our lives in Christ is one of joy. But we also see in many points in Scripture that that joy is a joy that has a minor chord to it as well, that embraces and takes on the suffering of this world in this broken place. We see that in many places in Scripture. We see psalms of lament in the book of Psalms that give voice uh, to the anguish of our souls. And tonight, in John chapter 19, we're going to be turning to one of those minor chords as well. Though it's certainly true that for Christians we never lose sight of Easter. We're going to do something a little bit unpresbyterian tonight. We're going, to, uh, we're going to take some time to reflect and let ourselves sit in the darkness and the real emotion and power of what goes on in John chapter 19. Never forgetting that John chapter 20 comes and we will get there on Sunday. But for now, we need to hear what God speaks to us through John chapter 19. And we'll be reading this chapter in its entirety. Let me pray for us, and then we'll read. Father, we come to you this evening on this Monday, Thursday. And though you have recreated us as people of joy in Christ, uh, we turn tonight to a part of the story that is very dark indeed. And you have put it here for us, for our good. So may we hear it anew tonight. Be with us. And we ask this in the name of Jesus and by the power of His Spirit. Amen. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold, the man... When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who has delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king! And they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. 
So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scriptures, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. At once there came out blood and water. He who saw it is born witness. His testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. But these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb on which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. The word that he's given to us tonight As we think uh, on this Monday, Thursday, not only of the Last Supper, which we will celebrate together in a moment, but as we look ahead to the events of Good Friday, as we see that for us here in John chapter 19, I think that if we're going to appreciate what's about to happen in our lives and um, in the church calendar and in our celebration as the body of Christ on Sunday, then we've got to take in John chapter 19 first. So we're going to look at what happened here, just briefly. And um, we're going to see, we're going to do that by just looking very briefly again at at four things that we see here about Jesus' death. 
they're right there on the surface, but I think they're. Um, I think that we need to reflect on them again tonight. So first, one of the first and most clearly uh, resonant things that we see in in John 19 is that Jesus' death was cruel. That it was cruel. John, if you notice, he, d- he doesn't really give m- much graphic detail, and, and really none of the, uh, the gospel writers do. Uh, they give us some of the basics. They doesn't go into a lot of extras to um, heighten the emotion for us. But for a, for a Roman audience that would have seen this scene and received this letter from John, they knew all about crucifixion. And they knew that the Romans were very, very good at killing people. Very, very good at killing people slowly and painfully in a way that was designed to bring the utmost shame and the utmost fear into all who watch. The message to take home is you must never cross Rome. and You must certainly never claim to be a king in the realm of Caesar. There are probably two beatings in the midst of this trial. One initially in chapter 18 when he's first brought to Pilate. And then once Pilate makes up his mind and decides that he is in fact going to send Jesus to be crucified, there's a second beating and uh, one that would have, would have been brutal. It would have, had a, would have involved a, a whip likely with bone or glass in the edge of it that was designed to create the most physical pain possible. Jesus would have taken the cross tied to the, of the cross and, and, and carried it to the place of crucifixion. Uh, there would have been nails in his wrists, one through both feet. And ultimately, victims of crucifixion uh, died, uh, not usually from blood loss, but instead from asphyxiation because they became so weak they could no longer hold their bodies up and their lungs would fill with fluid and, and they would die. And that's why in a situation like this, when the Jewish people, because of the Passover about to come, they, they want to hurry things up so they can take the bodies down. And that's why the soldiers go and break the legs of the men on either side of Jesus so that because of the broken legs, they could no longer push themselves up on the cross and they would die that much faster. They see Jesus was already dead and so to assure themselves of that, they stab him with a, with a spear. It was cruel and it was painful. But for a Roman seeing this, it, it didn't only represent physical pain, though it certainly would have. It represented also the utmost in, in humiliation and shame and scorn. Verse 5, when... Pilate brings Jesus out to the people after he's been beaten, and he says, Behold the man. There is, there is irony and sarcasm dripping from his lips. This man who claims to be king, this man that you're bringing to me because you say he claims to be king, this one, beaten and weak and abused, heaping scorn on him even then and heaping scorn on those who would accuse him as well was uh, so humiliating and so painful that Roman citizens were not allowed to be crucified, only non-citizens. So that's what happens to Jesus as he's executed as a common rebel on the side of the road. It was painful, it was humiliating. But for the Jews, it went even further than that. For them, as they knew their Bible, as they remembered Deuteronomy chapter 21, this would come to mind. His body shall not remain all night on the tree... But you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. 
It's this verse that Paul has in mind when he brings us up in Galatians 3. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And for the Jews living in Roman times, when they look back in Deuteronomy and they, it hurt, they saw someone being hanged, they equated that with what happens on the cross. And it is the ultimate curse of God that that would happen to someone. And so here's Jesus, the failed Messiah. Jesus' death said to everyone in attendance there that Jesus and his movement amount to nothing, that they are being ground out now by this very cruel death. His death was cruel. Second thing was his death was unjust. It's this kangaroo court from the start. He is, Jesus is first brought uh, in the preceding chapters to the religious leaders in Jerusalem who then take him to Pilate because they don't have the power under Roman law to execute uh, a criminal and only Rome can do that. So they take him to Pilate, the governor, and have him try this man. And you see in this Pilate wrestling back and forth with, on the one hand, he even says as he brings Jesus out in front of everyone, I, I find no guilt in him. And yet, being the consummate politician, he knows he has to protect himself as well. Because he's the governor of uh, Palestine, and under Roman control, the whole land of Palestine was volatile and dangerous all the time. There was always rebellion seething just under the surface. And Rome was always bringing its heel to crush it at every moment. And for any ruler under Rome who is going to rule over Palestine, you had to be very quick to squash any potential rebellion, and to show your allegiance to the king. And so two things are said that frighten Pilate. Brings it back out in verses 7 and 8. The Jewish leaders bring this accusation. They say he claims to be, he would, he would have himself to be the son of God. And then they go on in verse 12 and say, If you let him go, then you are no friend of Caesar's. We have no king but Caesar. Pilate goes back in to take conference with Jesus again. Where are you from? Who are you? Jesus doesn't answer. But he knows that he's in the presence of someone who does not deserve to die. Someone that his own leaders are calling a son of God. But the second part of the accusation they give to Pilate, you are no friend of Caesar's, would have shaken him uh, to his political core when he knew that if they go and take their complaint to Caesar, that Caesar's governor in Palestine would not take care of an upstart king. He knows that he will lose his job, if not his life, and he must do something. And so, here Pilate is wavering between rendering justice and protecting himself, and he chooses to protect himself. And Jesus' death was unjust. Third thing we see here, as we reflect on it, is that Jesus' death was ordained. It was ordained. It didn't come as a surprise. It didn't come as a surprise to Jesus, and it did not come as a surprise to God. And, And John wants us to get that. Four times towards the end of this chapter, he says that certain things happened in accordance with Scripture, that Scripture might be fulfilled, that Scripture which has spoken of these events in advance might be vindicated. Verse 24, when they take his garments. Verse 28, when he says, I thirst. Verse 36, when he says that no bone was broken. Verse 37, when it mentions that they pierced his side, all of which John is quoting the Old Testament. 
Additionally, in Matthew and Mark, they also quote these words of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Taken straight out of Psalm 22. Because John wants us and God wants us to know this. That God was not surprised by what happened. But in fact, that somehow mysteriously he was behind it all. God is absolutely in control. Even here on the darkest day in human history. That somehow here he is working his purposes through the sin of humanity. And we see it pictured for us as a mystery. The mystery of man's sin and own choices and God's overarching sovereignty. That hems it in and binds it together and still uses all things to accomplish his purpose. Jesus points to this verses 10 and 11 when he's speaking to Pilate and he says, Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all if it were not given to you from above. He never lets Pilate or anyone else off the hook, but behind it all, he says, there is a God whose sovereign purposes will win out. That's what Peter had in mind when he speaks of these incidents at the day of Pentecost as he preaches in Acts chapter 2. He says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Both things, he says, are true. Delivered up and crucified by lawless men, and yet all in in accordance with the the, uh, definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Here God is, on this very dark day, when all of Jesus' followers were looking at him thinking, what is going on We thought this was the one. We thought God was in control. And now everything is spilling to the ground like sand through our fingers. They did not see, and later would come to see, was that God was at work all along. Even in the darkness. His death was ordained. Finally, his death death was gracious. Do you see that? That's why John is telling us, This story, this God who ordained the sacrificial death of his son, did it for our good. He did something for us. Jesus, in verse 30, on the cross, says these words, it is finished. And you see what happens next? It says he gave up his spirit. It is finished. And he let himself die. Here we have Jesus, the author of life, put on a cross for no good reason. And the only way they could take his life was for him to give it up. But he did that for us. It is finished. All that God requires in payment for our sins, finished in that act of sacrifice by Jesus for us. When he says it is finished, he's not simply saying it's over or end of scene. He is saying this, it is accomplished It is fulfilled, all that is required. And because Jesus is able to say at his death, it is finished, then for all us who find our hope and life and salvation in Jesus, it is finished for us as well. Jesus answered before the bar of God's justice so that we never will have to ourselves. The verdict was given there. It's done. And so this terrible, cruel, unjust and ordained death becomes for us a gracious one. The very hope of the gospel for us. 
Sunday morning, we'll sing the hymn, Christ the Lord is Risen Today. And in those verses, it says this, Love's redeeming work is done. Fought the fight. The battle won. Here, in this moment, it is finished. This gracious death, we need to hear this, is for you and it's for me. This is the way Paul put it in Galatians chapter 2. As he speaks of identifying with Christ in his crucifixion, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. For me. And this too is the cry, the faithful, trusting cry of everyone who puts their faith in Jesus. Jesus Christ who died for me. On Good Friday, after giving us the gift of the Lord's Supper, going to a death, the day ending in darkness before the light would finally come. So for us over these next few days, next couple days as we prepare for Easter, uh, let us go these next couple days remembering our crucified Lord. The minor chord in the joy of the gospel, that we might more fully step into the joy of Easter a few days hence. This crucified Jesus, whom, as the Apostles' Creed reminds us, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. And as we see Jesus dying, delivered up for our sins, let us then be ready to remember and to celebrate Jesus risen from the grave. Jesus raised for our justification. Amen.